0: I'm Alex Green. Welcome to Stereo-Wembers, the podcast. Check this out.
1: It's time for you to leave again, my darling. It's raining outside and it's early in the morning. Pack a bag and you're everybody's friend. Let's call it half past ten.
0: That's the music of Mark Bryan, who is my guest today on the program. Let me tell you a little bit about Mark Bryan. He was born in Silver Spring, Maryland, and he decided after high school to go to college at the University of South Carolina. He majored in broadcast journalism, but he minored in having a band. His band was called the Wolf Brothers, and it was a band that he formed with a dorm pal of his. And they played out, and they played around, and they did pretty well. From frat parties to barbecues, the Wolf Brothers... Were your guys. Now, they picked up two new members and they started playing around. They renamed themselves. And as graduation approached, they had a conversation where they said, Do you think we should keep going with this band thing or should we, uh, you know, try to get jobs? Well, they went with the band thing. And history tells us that was a pretty sharp move because the band had been renamed at that point Hootie and the Blowfish, who would go on to do pretty well for themselves. Let me tell you a little bit about just how well that band did. They put out five albums of original material, and their debut album from 1994, called Cracked Rear View, remains the 12th best-selling album of all time. In addition to their studio output, they also put out a live album, a compilation album, and an album of covers. And, in the process, they put 16 songs in the Billboard Top 100. Now, Hootie and the Blowfish have been on hiatus since 2009, but... The band has gotten back together a few times here and there to play some charity gigs, and they are getting together to work on a new album very soon. But Mark Bryan, in his post-Hootie life, or his Hootie hiatus life, has arguably been busier than ever. He is the founder of Carolina Studios, a non-profit after-school program which helps kids get into music and the arts. He's also a professor of music at the University of South Carolina. I'm a professor, too. Mark Bryan and I have uh, a lot in common. We're both professors, and uh, between us, we've sold almost 30 million albums. Not bad. Uh, He's also the creator and executive producer and host of the Southeast Emmy Award-winning show live at the Charleston Music Hall. It's on PBS, and it's super awesome. It's a really great show with great live music, great guests, and uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, Austin City Limits meets, I don't know, maybe later with Jules Holland. It's a really terrific show. Mark has also put out three terrific solo albums, his latest one being Songs of the Fortnite, which is the one that he and I chat about. So we talked about that album. We did. And we also talked about Hootie and the Blowfish. We talked about the current state of the music industry. And we talked about Scruffy the Cat. It was a fun chat. I really enjoyed talking to Mark Bryan, really and truly one of the nicest guys in rock and roll. So enjoy this conversation with Mark Bryan right here on Stereo Embers. The podcast.
2: I talked with uh, after I heard I was doing this with you, and that you had just worked did a piece with Louise Goffin. Yeah, she she and I did a songwriter thing together a couple years ago. So I I emailed her right away, and I was like, Hey, I'm getting ready to do the same thing you did. Yeah, it was just a good chance for me to catch up with her and just say hi. So that's cool that you did a piece with her recently too. She's a sweetheart. Oh my god,
0: she is the coolest. We had a great chat when we were done. We talked for an extra thirty minutes about. She was like, How do I get into podcasting?
2: Hey, um, when we were together at the songwriter thing, she was playing ukulele on one of her songs, and I had my mandolin. And we, she's like, "Would you accompany me on mandolin when I'm playing ukulele?" I'm like, "Hell yeah, nobody does that." So we have a, it was her singing and playing one of her songs, and I was the accompaniment on mandolin. And it's the only time I've ever seen or heard of a uke and mando on the same, you know, in the same song. And that was it. No other instrumentation.
0: That's awesome. She's amazing. She played banjo with Brian Ferry. Did you know that? No, but nothing
2: surprises me with her because of her, you know, history and where she just grew up right in the middle
0: of it. I know. And she and also she toured uh, as the guitar player for Tears for Fears. What? Yeah. yeah she played. When Kurt Smith left the band and it was just Roland. she was she stepped in and she was the guitar player.
2: And she's too humble to tell anybody that in person. You had to dig it out of her in an interview.
0: Now, my first question has to do with the very first song on the album, which is a cover of Scruffy the Cat's My Baby She's Alright, which is from their uh, Tiny Days record. What made you record that song? Where did that Where did that decision come from?
2: Well, uh, I recorded the song for a Charlie Chesterman tribute um, album. Uh, I don't know, maybe six years ago or something like that. And then uh, five years ago, and when I was putting the album together, I think I had the track like five or six and Josh actually, um, who you spoke with to set up this interview suggested that we put it first. And I said, well, dude, I feel weird about putting the cover first on my album. And he said, you know, not only is it the perfect song to start the album, but he said, you know, we can, we can make that part of the angle of, of the album is, Hey, we're coming out of the box with this tribute song and he's like and you can uh donate the proceeds to the to Charlie Chesterman's foundation since he passed away a few years ago. And with that I was like, how how do you say no to that? And also Josh's sequence was way better than mine, so <laughs> <laughs> I just he took his word for it and went with it.
0: Were you a uh were you on board when Tiny Days came out back in what, eighty six was that?
2: Yeah, eighty seven. I was. Um in fact, the, there was an EP right before that too, High Octane Revival. Yeah. Uh, I was on board for that. I was, I became a college DJ in 85, so um, that, and that was right when High Octane came out, and I was listening to that right off the bat. The um, Land of a Thousand Girls was sort of a college radio hit.
0: And you know, 86, 87, 88, those were the, the years that college rock, I think, uh, in America was at its absolute strongest. Um, R.E.M., The Reavers, Love Tractor, 5440, those bands, they were, they were at their absolute zenith. Um, were you guys, were you guys listening to a lot of that stuff? And, and who were you fans of at that point?
2: We were, we're, we big Don Dixon fan. Anything he produced and he did Love Tractor and Guadalcanal Diary. And yeah. Anything, anything Don Dixon produced, we were big fans of. Dump Truck, R.E.M., Smithereens, you know, so... That was sort of our uh, within the band. That was like our go-to stuff back then. Was whatever Don Dixon was producing, and um, and as you know, we covered "I Go Blind" by Fifty Four Forty, which was another song that's right. from that era. Yeah, that uh, right. another album
0: from that era. I I thought Don Dixon's uh, "Most of the Girls Like to Dance" album with praying mantis was unbelievable. Yeah, that's a great record. Yeah. It's, it is, that is a great record. You know, it's funny, we're talking about this, and, I, and I'm wondering, in terms of, like, what do you think makes a song... Like, I look at Tiny Days, and I go, I couldn't even pick a song. Uh, I couldn't pick a favorite. That album's so strong. But what do you think makes a song endure? You know, what, what makes a song last? Uh, um, it's the perfect
2: combination of you know, melody, rhythm, and meaning. You know when you it's like uh you know what what makes an all-star baseball player a guy that can field and hit or a guy that can um you know he's got he's great across the board so i would say it's the same criteria for a, a song has to be great across the board maybe it makes uh some people feel something through the lyrics and a bunch of other people feel something through the rhythm and and then a bunch of bunch of people pick up the guitar riff or whatever it is, and then the combination of all that makes it endure.
0: But when you're in the process of writing the song, you don't know, right? You 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 can't tell if it's going to have that magic or that endurance or that sort of everlasting quality.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, you you never know when you're writing a song, you know, if it's going to have that type of endurance and. Sometimes you can feel it when you're recording it. If you hit, if you get like a really good tone going and you're recording, and you start to feel, oh, this is special. But you just never really know, you know. Uh, and, and people who claim they do are lying, you know. So it's, it always happens after the fact, I think, in, in music anyway. It's you have to write 20 songs to get one great one. But which one of those 20 is going to be the great one? You don't know until later.
0: Is that something that you knew early on or is that something that you sort of understand as you as you get older in the business and that you know you put in your 10,000 hours and more at this point uh, is that some kind of knowledge that you could have understood as a younger musician?
2: No, but I think you hear people say it but you don't really know it until you go through it and then um You know, but that, whether you're 20 or 50, you still, you still write the 20 songs to get to the one good one, even if you already know that. Because, because you still don't know which ones are going to be the ones that people think are great. Sometimes, like if I write, if I was to write 20 songs over the next year, the ones that I think are going to be great might fall off the map. And then the ones that I would discard might be the biggest hits. Like that's the weirdest thing of all, especially, you know, writers and artists have always had to deal with that. It's not what you, it's not what the writer or artist thinks should be the hit, it's what the listeners think, you know. How important
0: You gotta make them them all and put them all out there and see what happens. (laughs) Right. Right. How important are external voices? You know, how important, like you were talking about, Josh, uh, with the advice of of the Scruffy song, and um, you know, you have close friends, you have bandmates. How open to you are, how open are you to external... Um, reactions to your work and do you find that you're more open now than you ever were or what value do you put on on what people say to you as your I've always been I've always been open to it um, I think just because I mean you get less
2: so when you're young because you think you'd know it all when you're young but even then I just was naive enough to know that hey I don't I don't really know and so I think I've always been somewhat open to it not all there's a younger band that I work with now who does all of their own creative, including producing their own stuff. And, um, they're doing great with it. So I wouldn't change a thing for them. But for me, I was, I always like to have the outside input. Um, not when I'm writing, when I'm writing, it's, it's definitely me doing, making my art. But when I then turn it over, I'm wide open to what people think. In fact, I think I, a long time ago, I stopped having um, expectations for the outcome of what I create, um, and it, to me, it's more about the process of creating it and knowing that that's pure. And when that's pure, I'm confident that whatever happens with it afterwards is what's supposed to happen with it. It's out of my control on some level. What
0: What is the danger of having those expectations? Like you, you said you got rid of them, which is a really uh, I'm sure it was artistically freeing, but what, what kind of danger is there if you don't get rid of those?
2: Uh, disappointment, I think, uh, especially if you're a young artist and um, you, know, you, you, you have expectations and they don't come to fruition and then you end up in a place of disappointment and you sort of set yourself up for that disappointment. I see that happen with a lot of young artists.
0: I know when we're younger, we think we know everything. I know that. I'm guilty of that. Um, and it's something you kind of let go as you <laughs> as you get older. Um, but is it hard to communicate that to, to younger musicians, knowing that they think they know and you know that they don't know? How do you bridge that gap?
2: Um, you can't. You just have to explain it to them, and then they're still going to have to go make their own mistakes before they actually realize the truth of it. And, and and on one level, you don't want to, you don't, you don't want a young musician to become jaded. Let let them, let them think they know it all. Let them think like this young band, I was talking about that produces themselves, you know, ultimately, yeah, I think they're going to need a producer, but the fact that they're not using one right now is helping them create a sound that is really unique because it's their thing. And they're not, working with a producer who will homogenize it to try to bring it towards the center right now. And so because of that, they sound really unique and they sound only like they could possibly sound by doing it all themselves. And I'm not, and it sounds so good that I don't want to, I don't want to try to talk them out of that. I know that they're going to end up working with a producer at some point. You know, I know that's going to happen when, when the time is right, but I'm not going to force that to happen before the time is right. Because they're killing it already on their own, you know.
0: Who was a mentor for you when you were that age? Who was someone that, that took you aside or offered you input or advice that was, you know, was seismic for you and influential?
2: Bob Dixon was one of those people. Um for sure. We met him we met him when we were making our first E P, so um we met him before we were ever signed or anything and he he was a big influence on us. Cause we, like I told you, we loved all his albums anyway, that he was producing and his solo stuff. And so to get to work with him early on was magical for us. And then the guy who signed us to Atlantic records, Tim summer, um, who was in a band called Hugo Largo. in the yeah. '80s, And he was also a VH1 DJ and um, just a wonderful person. And he was a, early influence on us. He signed us to Atlantic and kind of gave us a lot of um, really solid advice about moving into that world of uh, corporate and labels. And he was, he came from a real indie background. So it was nice to have him in our corner because he was, he was really, uh, he had a healthy approach about keeping the creative side based on what we did all along. He's like, Hey, I didn't sign you guys because of what Atlantic thinks you're going to sound like. I signed you because, you know, thousands of people in the Southeast like the way you sound now. So let's get that, you know? So he was a really pow- powerful influence on us as well.
0: What did Don Dixon uh, teach you? man?
2: Uh, I can remember some of the early things that I learned from him were I'm a, I'm a producer now. And so i I really paid attention to um, his approach, and one of the things was how he I learned from him was how important free production is as a producer and that that process of fleshing out songs before you go into the studio and um and he's such a spiritual guy I mean soulful kind of soul when i say spiritual I really like to say soulful he's so soulful and he brought that energy to our practice sessions and our pre-production, and that elevated our game. You know, and I remember that feeling of his presence, sort of uh, making everything gel a little better and giving it a little soulful feel that maybe we didn't have before that. And how and how that affected our recordings. You know, once we the band got better in the pre-production sessions, and then the sound, then the recordings sound better.
0: So when you say pre-production, are you referring to just arrangements? Arrangements and like,
2: you know, do do we need, sometimes you only need to tweak one or two lines lyrically, but hey, did we really stay it all the way, the best possible way it could be said, or could we tweak this line here and there? Little things like that, um, you know. Sometimes you even, in pre-production, you might even change the rhythm, rhythm structure or tempo of the song, or change the key to fit the singers' vocal better, or, you know, just those kind of things that the band might not think about, but the producer comes in and hears something and suggests it, and then all of a sudden the song can go to another level.
0: Is it a is temptation for you as a producer? I mean, you have to have a, um, you know, a deft hand because you don't want to overproduce or you don't want to come in and, and bully the band out of their own ideas, right? So a producer, part of the job is to have a a steady but gentle hand, right?
2: Without a doubt. You you uh, you can make a change when you hear that one needs to be made, but then you have to be just as adept at knowing when to shut up and say, "Wow, that's really good as it is." I'm I'm going to leave that like just like it is. There's nothing I can do to make that better. You know, this is the essence of this artist, so I, I need to leave that just like it is.
0: And have you, as a producer, do you feel that you've gotten better at at sort of stepping back and and doing that,
2: yeah, I do, and also also feel like I've gotten better at adding something when it's needed, um, especially with these young artists who some of them haven't recorded very much and and they might they might have a really good voice live, and all their friends and fans come and say how great they are, but then they get the studio, and you're not getting a hundred percent out of them, or maybe out of the song that we're working on and and that's where the producer can really make a difference, you know. <laughs>
0: In terms of your own songwriting, I mean, I love your records so much. I love, you know, songs like Forgetting About Me or, um, you know, uh, Almost Loved Me. I mean, these are songs that, to me, I go, man, Mark is so efficient as a songwriter. I mean, you really, um, I mean, I don't know what the cutting room floor looked like, but these songs, they're so, so strong. Um, do you think that you, as a songwriter, have become more efficient over the years? Yeah,
2: and I think... And thank you, by the way, those are really kind words. And, and um, I think that producing other acts has helped me become more efficient as a songwriter because now as, as I write songs, I can sort of do a little uh, pre-production on them the, on the second go-round. Like, let's say I say I write a song and then I get back, come back to it the following week. I know how to make little edits and adjustments that already help take that song to another level Based on what I might do for another artist, you know, in a pre-production session, I just do the same kinds of things to my songs, and so I think that has helped me become a little bit more efficient songwriter.
0: Do you listen to, uh, you know, what other people are doing, even if you're not working with them, and say like, wow, you know, Patty Griffin is writing songs like this, or um, you know, Allison Cross, or whoever, and and do you pick up stuff from that as well?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm still a fan, and so that that's nice to be able to like, I dig into a lot of music as a fan. And at the time I'm listening to it, I'm not really thinking about how it's going to influence me or affect my actual career, or my songs. I'm just listening as a fan. You let it soak in. And then after you listen to something you like for a while, it starts to give you a vibe, you know, and you're like, Oh, this is what they did for that. Or this is why this album feels that way. And then you, start saying, oh, well, maybe a part of that fits into what I can do, you know, with this song or that. So, yeah, it it, uh, it definitely, uh, being a fan ru- definitely rubs off into my own art um, indirectly. You know, I think most artists will tell you the last thing you want to do is lift something. I, you know, it happens all the time in hip hop and the sampling and all that kind of thing. But um, most songwriters and artists want to try to do something unique and different.
0: You know, I I think about in terms of, for years, I always thought you were from Charleston. I didn't know that you were from Maryland until a few years ago. Um, Oh, right. I I wanted to ask you about that because you've, you know, you've become Charleston's adopted son, but you have on the album, you have a song from Maryland, which is just a terrific number. It's one of my favorites on the album. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I love that song. Can you talk a bit about what, you know, what is the definition for you of home? Because I think Charleston clearly... It feels like home team now, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I still go to Maryland all the time. Like, I just went up for
2: Thanksgiving, um, and did a gig with my old buddies, and um, and we play the Turkey Bowl every year, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I still have the Maryland connection, but you know, I've lived in Charleston since '99 now, and that's that's home probably for the rest of my days. Um, I, you know. I'd love being near the water. If I was still up in Maryland, I'd probably be somewhere near Annapolis, you know, and, and, but having moved down to Charleston, I've got my proximity to the water and I've got my job at the college of Charleston teaching music industry. And then that's helped me, um, get involved in the next generation of musicians in the scene in Charleston. And, um, so now I'm I'm heavily involved in all of that. And, um, I wouldn't trade it for anything right now other than going back on tour with Hootie, which hopefully that'll happen in the next year or so. Uh, i take a break from everything I have going on in Charleston, but that'll always be there when I get back.
0: You know, I, I teach college uh, English, and so you and I are both working with college students. How was that experience for you?
2: Oh, man, I've I always told people, it's like, it's perfect. It was the perfect thing for me to take on when we went off the road in 08, 09, we, we decided to, Stop touring. Um, everyone thinks we broke up, but we really just took a hiatus. And um, and and when I knew we were going to do that, the college offered me the job, and just the timing could not have been more perfect. And and so it's been great for the last eight years, just doing this and taking the experience that I've gained over the years, and been just sort of relaying it to the next generation. Um, you know, there's no better use of all that, everything i learned and all that experience. What, what better use can there be than to put it back into the, the next group of kids coming along trying to do what we did, you know?
0: Do you find that you're not only able to reach these students, uh, but to also connect with them as well?
2: Yes, uh, and but it is it does take some effort. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, one thing that, uh, like, Early on, I, I the first day of class, I let them talk to me about why they're in my class and why and what they're aspiring to in the music industry. Or, and some of them say, "I have no idea." That's why I'm taking this class. I'm like, "Well, then you're in the right place." And then you know, so you can sort of uh, get a read off them early for who's interested in what, and then. Um, another thing that I do is you know, we have a book. We work with the Donald Passman book, All You Need to Know About the Music Business. Sure. And that, that kind of gives everybody the nuts and bolts of what's going on in the music industry. But um, past that, I like to keep up with current topics too. And so whatever we're learning from the book, I'm relating some current topic that applies. Like, for instance, if I'm teaching about compulsory mechanical licenses, I can talk about those the new 1.6 billion dollar lawsuit against Spotify, who went in and started airing a bunch of songs without the proper mechanical licenses. Right. So, like you know, it's a real life example of, of what I'm teaching, and and that keeps everybody tuned in because they all are listening to Spotify, and 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 when they hear that Tom Petty's estate is suing Spotify, that'll perk them up, you know, right away. So, fortunately, I have a really interesting subject that I teach that a lot of kids. Uh, you know, stay tuned into, but at the same time, if I didn't have that example, uh, of the Spotify lawsuit and I was just in class talking about specifically compulsory mechanical license, those three words right there will make you fall asleep. So (laughs) so you kind of have to, you have to be able to tie in what you're teaching to something they know or something they've heard, or, you know, uh, another good example would be like when we talk about copyright, um, I just dug up an article about the, uh, um, the Robin Thicke Pharrell Williams track from a couple of years ago that got uh, – they were sued for stealing the Sam Cooke track or whatever. Right. You know, the blur- blurred lines. That's right. Yeah. So that would be an example of a song that they know from when they were in high school now or maybe early college for some of them, and they probably heard it on the radio a bunch, and now we could talk about the copyright infringement. of. It. But
1: if I can use that example – they don't fall asleep. Don't know where I stand with the girl. I should have said It's a song for Maryland. For
0: Maryland. What you're teaching is happening in real time too. I mean it's 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 unfolding because the industry changed. And it's still changing, and it's still it still hasn't sorted itself out. So what you're what you're teaching is actually happening as your as your classes is, is being taught, which is really unusual.
2: Yeah, it is. It's uh, I'm, I'm in a, a a unique situation with that, and it's it's been a lot of fun. It's like each semester I'm using different examples of what I'm teaching because of what you're saying. Because there's so much happening right now, you know. Yeah. Like for instance, a year ago, when I was talking about the the uh, Compulsory Mechanical License issue. We were talking about the David Lowry and Melissa Farrick lawsuit, which was only forty-five million dollars. Now it's this, uh, this way bigger one with you know, Tom Petty's estate and all these other huge names, and it's a one-point-six billion-dollar lawsuit. So it's one year later, and we're talking about the exact same thing, but it's a completely different example because, like you say, everything's changing so fast right now.
0: Was it hard for you as a transition? I mean, I told you I was a tennis player. So when I have a tennis racket in my hand, I feel really comfortable. When you have a guitar in your hand, that's how you made your living for all these years. Suddenly you're Professor Brian and there's no guitar in your hand. Was that a weird transition for you?
2: Yes and no. So uh, it's easy for me to get up in front of people. I was a broadcast journalism major and I was on the mic for years with Hootie. So public speaking was not an issue, but – Teaching that material and relaying it properly was definitely a challenge. And, you know, the, I think every semester has been a success, but the class is certainly a better class and more streamlined now than it was, you know, five years ago. Where you just keep getting better as you go.
0: And you have uh, office hours and, and people come by and they actually take advantage of the fact that you're there and you're willing to help them. Well, I'm not –
2: I'm not tenured. I'm just an adjunct professor. I've I'm, I'm never gone and got my master. So I don't keep an office at the college, um, but I do have an office just off campus and I'm available to students. So, um, and, and a lot of times what I will do is just meet with them right before class because that's usually when I'm in town and when it fits time wise. So if somebody needs to meet with me, I'll just say, hey, let's meet at the coffee shop next to class, you know, at, at an hour beforehand or whatever. And that's usually how I do it.
0: You know, we talked about the industry changing. By the way, does Spotify survive? Do you think? Do you think they'll make it? And there's like, I see like these huge lawsuits against them, and they're still talking about going public. Do you think they're going to survive? They're in real trouble, man. Um, you know, I when you when you realize
2: that all three of the majors have invested <clears throat> invested in Spotify and are uh, have ownership in it, then that makes you think, oh, well, they're going to find a way. Um, you know, if Universal Music Group and Sony and Warner all get together, they could probably bail Spotify out of this thing. Not to mention, they all have side deals with Spotify. So well, I, I think what's gonna ha- all of the artists listed in the lawsuit probably have catalog with the, these three majors. So there's probably going to be some sort of settlement, you know, and Spotify will will live on it may very well prevent them from going public as quickly as they thought they would. Um, and here's another question, you know, and this gets off the topic of our interview, but is is the Spotify business model the right one as we move forward with streaming? I mean, we're only in a year and a half into streaming being the, the majority of music sales or whatever. So it's still really new in the game. Uh, you know, is Spotify the right model or is there a better business model out there for streaming that we don't even, that we can't see yet. That just hasn't come along. I asked that question a lot because, uh, you know, we're just in such in the beginning of this whole thing with streaming, but it's, it's the way of distribution for music for the foreseeable future at least the next 20 years or so. So you know that there's going to be another behemoth that's going to come along with a different and maybe better business model than Spotify. And if they're in all kinds of financial trouble when that happens, you can kiss them goodbye.
0: Yeah, and for you know for that for that next wave, they just have to look at Spotify's mistakes and go, let's just not do those things.
2: That's right. And and one of the biggest mistakes they made was not was was uh, offering catalog that wasn't licensed properly. So they're paying for it now.
0: Do you, it's funny, because we talk about the industry changing, you know, you guys were huge in a time where you could sell 15 million albums, and now that's all changed. Is Has that been something to adjust to in terms of, oh, the industry that I that I have worked in, like my job has changed, the way things have gone have changed. Has that been, in terms of you adjusting with your solo career and with Hootie, has that been a, a an adjustment for you you've had to make?
2: Absolutely, so... You know, obviously, our first record hit at the height of retail sales. And right after that, literally four years later is when Napster came along and changed the whole game. So almost all of our albums that we put out after that were it put out in a climate where it wasn't even possible to sell as many physical albums. So, you know, we were, we, we were dealing with that. Hootie was dealing with that by the time we got to our third album of like, Hey, we're never going to sell that many albums again. And that's okay. But you know, it's, it's sort of, that definitely changes everything. And then, um, after we stopped making albums, I guess, whatever that was 10 years ago when we, when we decided to take a break and I started thinking about my, the next stuff I was going to release, I decided to do singles instead of an album. And I did, um, I had a blog called Songs Song of the Fortnite, and I, every two weeks I would put out a new song. And I did them as singles instead of an album because of the the nature of the industry and because of all the changes. And then just this past August, I finally released them as an album. But so that that all that transition definitely affected the way I decided to release music. And then as far as Hootie moving forward. We just are not quite far enough along yet in our new project for me a comment. So I don't know exactly what we're going to do, what label we're going to use. Are we going to do a singles campaign? Are we going to do albums? I just don't know what we're going to do yet. But I love that the sky's the limit and that it's wide open and that we could possibly do something. Being in the position of there's a bunch of people that want to hear a new album from us. We're in a position to possibly do something a little groundbreaking like Taylor Swift's done with with streaming where she says, hey, you can't streaming can't have my new music until six months in or whatever. Like that was a really revolutionary move by her. And those types of things are on the table for us now where, you know, it'll be our first album in 10 years. So it'll be really fun to see what we can can do uh, to release it in a really unique way that takes the most advantage of the situation that we all find ourselves in now with the industry.
0: Yeah, I think that in, there's so much possibility. You can almost do anything, I and mean, you're it really the sky is really the limit. I mean, which is really nice. Yeah,
2: I mean, like we could be part of whatever a new streaming model is. Let's say you know a, a new company's coming along around the time we're putting our album out. And we might be able to be part of the groundbreaking part of that. I think U2 done some of that stuff over the years too that's been really impressive to me. So I would love if we were in the position to um, not just make an impact with our music, but maybe make an impact with the way we release our album and all that sort of thing, even if that were part of the story. I mean, I have no idea if that's going to happen. It's just kind of fun to think that it could.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really funny. You know, about 10 years ago, I was in Amoeba Music here in Berkeley. And I had been looking for tiny days on CD because I had the vinyl when I was a college DJ. Relativity sent me that vinyl. So I always had it. But I wanted it on CD. I couldn't find it. This is before you could just, you know, find maybe it was longer than 10 years ago. And I found it for like five bucks, Mark, right? In like the in the bargain section. And in the middle of the record store, I went, yes, like an absolute idiot. And I was so excited that I'd sort of found this holy grail. But now, you know, music is if i put a bunch of cds in front of my college students they they wouldn't know what they were um so music as a kind of uh, a currency has changed right like it's you know it's it's become a different the model has changed and the medium has changed but i like yes. yeah that you, that you're not that you're not um that's not daunting to you you f- you still feel that you can find a way to oh yeah people. no but I, I i think it's – felt that way when
2: we were like I said when we were still releasing Hootie albums it felt very daunting because we were like wow I mean the numbers just kept going down but but not at our shows you know like the fans were still there just the amount of albums that we could sell just became less and less like and and not just for us for everybody and so at the time that really did seem daunting but now when you start to think about it and and not having not released so much material over the last 10 years and kind of get my head and teaching on all this, teaching this, it's now like, Oh wow. Now it's forget about what, what used to be. It's like now, so what, what's possible here? So here's our new um, platform, you know, for how we're going to release music. So what are all the different possibilities that we can do with this? And that's how you start to think about it now. I mean, I'm only forward thinking with it now because as a, as a consumer, I like streaming. I really do. Um, but as an artist, I'm really upset with the uh, with the way that it pays on the back end for artists and writers. And I've been to D.C., I've been to, with the National Music Publishers Association and lobbying on Capitol Hill on behalf of Songwriter Equity and all that. I really hope to see um, something change there. But unfortunately, from being there firsthand, I can tell you that it literally is going to take an act of Congress before anything changes. And as one of the representatives told us, well, if you could get Trump to tweet about songwriter equity, maybe we can get something done because that's the only thing we ever vote on is whatever he's tweeting about. So, you know, it's just mired right now. And and that's so unfortunate, the back end of it. So all you can do there is fight the good fight. But at the same time, if we could find... A, stream, a new streaming model that is good for consumers and artists and seems to make more sense somehow, you know, then it becomes a win-win for everybody. And, and I mean, it's a little bit of idealistic thinking, I know. But I also know that, you know, the the sky really is the limit right now, and everybody's calling it the Wild West and all that kind of stuff. So if there were ever a time to be on the cutting edge of it all, you know, this is it, and it's exciting.
0: Yeah. And I mean, and a lot of industries have changed. I mean, you know, the sports industry has changed the way that we, you know, take in other mediums have changed. It's not just music, but I'd love to see young bands still be able to make a living, um, uh, doing what they do. Um, the, what I love about your record is, and again, I know you and I are of the same vintage, but so if I say to you, oh, Mark, what's your favorite album closer? And you said, oh, here comes a regular You know, I would know you were talking about Tim, or if I said I love Good Feeling, you know, I'm talking about the Violent Femmes. What I love about your album is that I listen to maybe then the acoustic version, and I go, "Well, that's the perfect album closer. That's the exact right way to end this album." So, what I love about this record is the sequencing is so cohesive that it it plays like a full album, you know, front to back. Yeah, yeah, right.
2: Well, thank you for noticing that. And um, Josh and I both that was the one thing we did agree on that we both had maybe then as the last song. (laughs) The rest of my sequence was completely different than his, but that part was the same. Um, But he, I just really liked his sequence better than mine. And that's where it goes back to what you were asking about earlier is having like an outside perspective, you know, having a producer, having a publicist, having somebody that can look at it from a different perspective. Because, you know, as the artist, you, you end up too close to it at the end of the day. There's nothing you can do about it. You wrote them, you recorded them, and you're putting the artwork together. You're just too close to it to to be objective anymore. Sometimes it's so, a so it's nice to have somebody like Josh. And when he sent me that sequence, I was like, "Oh, this is so much better than mine." <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: I imagine. What did you have the, as the album closer? Just it was no, always we maybe the same, we
2: had the same one as the closer. We both had maybe then as the closer, um, and then. Um, I I can't remember. I, I think I had it starting with I might have put forgetting about me first.
0: Oh, I and see. Then,
2: and then I had uh I had only love can satisfy second, which is like the eleventh on his. Yeah, that's now <laughs> that's then, not a uh, deep
0: cut, Mark. That's officially a deep cut.
2: <laughs> yeah. Now it is. Yeah. And then Um, and then almost love me. I had like tenth and he's got a third, you know. So he just flipped everything around. Yeah. And and once I listened to his sequence, it just jumped out at me way more than mine did. So I just went with it. I was like, Well, he obviously knows what he's doing here. I'm gonna go with this.
0: (laughs) You know what I what I loved is, you know, you guys have a song that mentions the Dolphins and Bob Dylan. Charlie Chesterman has a song with Scruffy where he mentions Stephen Fetchett and Neil Armstrong. Both of those things have never been repeated in music history ever. Um, and, and I love that. And I always felt that you know, when it comes to the music I like, it feels like anything's fair game to put in a song. When you're writing your, your music and you're writing your lyrics, do you feel there's some things that you won't put in a song or do you feel that, the, that it's wide open?
2: I mean, wide open because I mean, you make you make a good point about those references, and there's many others where you're like, "Where the hell did they get that from?" But then it becomes this catchy thing that goes down in history, and you're like, "Well, I guess there's no rules to this, you know." And so you have to stay wide open to it. And I'm I'm a big proponent of when you're writing, write it all. You can always go back later and edit. So so write it all at first, and even if it's the goofiest thing ever, no one ever has to hear it if you don't like it, you know but write it all down. And so um, I'm kind of wide open with all that. Yeah, I'm not afraid to use proper nouns in a song if we have to or if it makes it song better. And I love, one of my favorite things about writing is that poetic license where you turn a phrase in a way that nobody ever has. You're saying the same thing that everybody knows. It still relates, but you're putting it in a way, and maybe you put some words together that, that just have a nice feel to them, alliteration or rhyme or whatever, and you're putting something in a way that nobody ever has, but you're still saying something that's a uh, universal truth, you know. And I love that. And so, and you, in order to do that well, you have to be open to anything, you know. You have to be open to any possible reference that might make sense. Yeah,
0: because Charlie Chesterman reminded me of—he was like Buddy Holly, and and you know, because there was a simplicity to his songs. But then he'd also without st- a
2: doubt, that's a Buddy Holly is a really good reference for him.
0: Yeah, and he'd sneak in these other elements where you're like, I remember when I was 17, I said to my dad, Who was Stephen and Fetch it? I didn't know who that was. I didn't know who that was. And he was like, Why right. are you asking me that? Um, but I love the idea that, you know, anything can be put in. And when you like I said, when you guys mentioned Dylan and the Dolphins, that always is an interesting thing for me, because I always felt you and I grew up in a time where you could look at someone and you'd know what their record collection looked like. You write that guy like liked the Priest, that guy listens to Bauhaus. And now you can't do that anymore. That's that's totally changed. Like the cheerleader has a nose ring, you know. You and that wouldn't have happened in the early eighties. Um yeah, that's a good point. Right. A very good point. Cultures start to come together after a
2: while, you know. Um another another really vague reference that I love has been the Toad the West Rocket song where he's like, You bend your words like Yuri Geller's spoons.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know the one I'm talking about? Yeah, isn't that about Nancy? That isn't that the uh yeah, it's in Nancy. And Nancy, yeah,
2: you take Nancy for me. Loretta's fine. Yeah, but, yes. Yeah, I can't believe you bend your words like Yuri Geller spoons. And I, and we were touring with Toad at the time. I'm like, you know, Glenn, why do you got to be so like cool? <laughs> <laughs> Pulling out Yuri Geller spoons in a lyric
0: in a song <laughs> about Nancy Griffith. its unbelievable. In a, in a song about Nancy Griffith. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that is a, that's a great reference. You're right. Sure. Yeah, you um. By the way, I saw you have uh, the fellow from Jump Little Children, who are one of my all-time favorite bands, too. He's uh, Is he still with you in the band? Jonathan, yeah. Well, I mean, we just,
2: we just do gigs together. He's an old friend. He's so super talented. Great, great bass player, great singer, and just a wonderful person and really funny. And um, they are making a new album.
0: I heard, which is yeah, incredible. They've been doing
2: a few, a few shows lately, a few reunion shows, and they sound as good as they ever have, so
0: yeah they're they're great I think of them as as like they like the American squeeze um oh, that's cool, yeah, I, I
2: love I that feel like I always felt like they had a little bit of like queen in them or something not the drama, but like the uh the the really unique songwriting and arranging where it's like sounds there's nothing else you could compare it to um,
0: yeah and, and no two songs sound the same with those guys too, which is another thing that they have in common with queen,
2: um yeah, which and is they, the their, their writer Jay Clifford is uh he really likes to push the envelope and as a musician, you know, I love that. So
0: No, Jay's amazing. And uh in terms of your band, uh Johnny Gray's the man, huh?
2: Johnny Gray's a guy that I will play with anytime, anywhere. And so if I have a gig
0: and I need a bass player, like he'll be one of the first people I'll call. Yeah, he's, he's incredible. You know, I know a lot of guys who know you and the, uh, the tagline on you is that you're one hell of a nice guy. Uh, you seem like you've had no problem keeping friends in this industry, which is a, a very tough industry to keep friends in. What, um, how important have, has your Confederacy, your, your fellow bandmates, your uh, friends in other bands, um, how have you maintained those relationships and how important has that been for you professionally and personally?
2: I think uh, that's more just about uh, approach to life, not necessarily my career. And that's about just treating people fair, treating people right, um, go, t- making the extra effort. Like even when our band was the biggest band as far as like how many albums we were selling, I still was. I still didn't. It didn't make me want to snub anybody ever. I still wanted to take that extra minute with like a young guitar player and answer his questions or. um or, you know, sit down with the promoter that did the show and have a beer afterwards and celebrate the good night we just had or go early. We would always go early to the radio stations and do the mornings and, and you know, bring them a signed copy and all that kind of stuff. You know, just, you, just those little things that you can do where you show someone you care. Um, you know, like yeah, we're playing Madison Square Garden that night, but my friend's band is playing at Rockwood Music Hall, and I still go down after the show and hang out. To because because he, I want to support him just as much as he supports me. That kind of thing. And it's those little things and having that attitude. That sort of uh, attitude of humility, I guess, is the best way to put it. That I think go a long way. And to me, that's not about music or. Sports or any career it's about that's just about life and and how you approach life and um and so i I don't bat a thousand at it but you know if you have if you're shooting for that then you're more likely to to hit it here and there and i and so if that's my reputation then that is a that's one of the best thing I could possibly hear so thank you for saying
0: oh w- with pleasure uh tell me a bit about the pBS show
2: um okay so when we
0: took the break and I
2: was producing my own stuff and started teaching at the college. Oh, I ended up downtown Charleston a lot. And, um, the owner of the music music hall, um, owned this amazing room, but he was like, man, I'm never going to be a promoter. He's like, I don't want to, he's like, it's just not me. I'm not going to start promoting shows. And I, and he's like, I have this amazing room and everybody that plays in there loves it. But, but if I'm not going to be a promoter, what should I do with it? And I was like, listen, man, i am telling you right now, I'm not going to be a promoter either. <laughs> like, no, like you've you come to the wrong guy for that. Like, I don't know how to help you fill your room every night. I said, but I know that um, we we could make a really cool TV show in the vein of an Austin City Limits out of, out of Charleston, which me and my partner at the time were talking about anyway. Like, how do we do like something cool like ACL but out of Charleston? So when he came and said, what do I do with this venue, we put those two ideas together. We were like, hey, let's make a TV show with this venue as the focus. And
0: it worked. From conception to completion, how long was the process?
2: And so we uh, took about five years uh, to put all the pieces in place. But we finally got a season one finished, and PBS loved it. And now it's going to be airing all over the country.
0: That's so cool. It, so it's like it's like Austin City Limits meets like a Jules Holland kind of thing, like the same kind of spirit.
2: Yeah, I mean, I love the Jules Holland show, and I wish I could say that it inspired this one. We were actually on that show in the 90s, but it, it's not it didn't it's it's less it's less Jules and more ACL, I would say. It's it's one concert from whatever act and we play probably it's a 30 minute show. So we play four or five songs from the concert. And then mix it in with really cool interview and hangout footage around Charleston.
0: Tell me about season one.
2: Season one is uh, Sam Bush, uh, uh, Toad the Wet Sprocket, uh, Sister Hazel, um, Edwin McCain, uh, Sarah Gerose, Parker Millsap. And then we do have a few, and then Driving and Crying. And then we have a few that are regional local, like lot Observations. Uh, Patrick Davis and uh, a girl who was on American Idol named Elise Testone. She was and Phillip, when Philip Phillips won. She was like fifth. Ah. Uh. She and Philip. She and Philip Phillips did uh, "Stop Dragging My Heart Around" together, and she was the one that did "Whole Lot of Love" by Zeppelin. It just came. oh, I remember she, her.
0: Yeah, she was yeah. great.
2: Yeah. So she, she's one of the episodes is her, um, and so it came out really well. We have a really good director, which that helps. I mean you know, I can't take any credit for that part of it. He's amazing, but I host and I am the executive producer and um and
0: we're on we're in ten plus markets at this point so wow exciting. and so so the hope is to have the show keep going like you'd like for it to be an ongoing thing
2: absolutely. I mean, at this point we've got it started. why not and um and you know it's it's gotten a really positive response including a regional emmy last year
0: that's amazing congratulations and um that's quite an achievement and by the way cool you have driving and crying on there that's 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 a great band oh without a doubt
2: and they sound as good as they ever have i i actually did um about 10 shows with them last year as their guitar player in 2006 wow um yeah they brought me out they brought me out to do some european swings and um and a few shows around the Southeast and we had a blast. Great guys, old friends,
0: you know, Kevin Kenny, what a songwriter. Um, So for you, uh, Mark, for you professionally, what are you, what are your goals and what are some things that you, are you the kind of guy who, are you competitive with yourself? Do you always push yourself or you just kind of see what happens next?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm actually uh, it's funny. You should say that because now that we're talking about a new new hootie project, I, I feel that it's important for me to get away from the outside projects which would be like the college and the TV show and and get back towards being um, creative in the studio again and with songwriting and, and trying to help establish a sound for my band you know because if we're going to make a new album I, I want to sound like Hootie and the Blowfish and sound like we sound now and you know I don't know I feel like once we start working with a label and management and start getting out there there's going to be all this pressure to to collaborate and to try this and that. And I, I really think what got, the reason we got so big in the first place was because of what we sound like, the four of us. And so I think it's gonna be, to me, it feels like it's really important to work on that aspect and have a bunch of material ready to go that the four of us wrote, not not from outside stuff. Now that's not to say we won't have outside co-writes on our, own. we probably will, I mean, I'm not against it or anything. But I think that if we can start from a place of here's what the four of us are doing now, then it's going to give the new album this sort of cohesive um, feel and this sort of uh, sound that no one else can make except the four of us because it's what we do. And ultimately, I think that's what Hootie fans want to hear. And so this year, my goal is to really work hard on that with the guys and, and try to start to create a little bit of a sound and figure out what we sound like
0: now in 2018, you know. And that's a huge challenge because it's like, because who knows? So that that's like something you'll have to discover. Yeah, exactly. And so
2: that's where my heads at now. And I mean, you know, I still have the. Uh, I, I'm still going to teach college this year, and I'm still going to see the television show through. But in my free time, that's what I want to be doing is, is really working on, um, the, you know, what we
0: what we sound like now. I, I just because no, like you say, it's unknown. Nobody knows. So it'll be fun. It'll be totally fun. I was thinking about you hosting the PBS show, and I'm thinking, well, finally you're using your college degree. You, you're- that's, exactly, that's exactly. I
2: make that same joke. It's like uh, when everyone talks, "What got you to that?" I'm like, "Hey, man, I've been doing that for all along. My degrees, <laughs> and finally, I'm actually finally using it."
0: Don't you want to go back to school now and take that guy's class? Be fun, right? A lot more fun than my class. I can't get up there and say, uh, before we start, I want you to know I'm the guitar player for Hootie and the Blowfish. I can't say that. All I can say is, before we start, I want you to know, if you look at me weird, I might start crying. Uh, I'm Alex Green. This has been Stereo Embers, the podcast. I appreciate You listening, I appreciate Mark Bryan for taking the time to chat with me. Thanks to Josh Bloom for setting the whole thing up. And thanks to you for uh, continuously listening to the program and supporting us here. If you are interested in what goes on here at Bombshell Radio, go to bombshellradio.com. You'll find that we're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The lights are always on, and the music is always coming out of our studio windows. Now, if you want to find us on iTunes, you can do it. Please subscribe to Bombshell Radio. And if you could, also subscribe to Stereo Embers, the podcast. It's free, and we're going to make sure it stays that way. Hey, it wouldn't hurt to leave a positive comment, too. Uh, If you leave a negative comment, that might hurt a bit. That might sting. But we're adults. We can handle it. All right. Thank you again for listening, and I will see you next week right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.